handout. So we should have a new handout that starts on page 99. It's got a little chart at the top of it. We'll talk about that in just a second once we get started. Um, it's a beautiful night outside, so I appreciate that you guys are here. And um, I'm looking forward to a couple more weeks tonight and two more, right? And then we got to wrap up the Gospel of Matthew. So it's moving along quickly. Let me uh, open them with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive into the notes. Father, I'm thankful to, to be here tonight. I'm thankful for um, your care for us. I'm just grateful that we have your word and that you've spoken, uh, that your spirit illuminates it, uh, applies it to our hearts. I just pray that we listen carefully tonight to what it says about your son and that uh, it would be used by your spirit to, to change us to be like him. And uh, we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Matthew chapter 26, where we left off last time. Uh, Jesus had just finished the Olivet Discourse. And that last discourse, it ends in chapter 26, verse 1, with that same distinctive formula that we've seen five times now. When Jesus had finished. That's Matthew's way of marking the end of the discourses. In this one, he specifically says that after Jesus has finished it, he talks to his disciples there in verse 2 and tells them that the Passover is two days away. So this might be a good point just to kind of step back and reflect on the chronology of Jesus' final week leading up to the cross. Yes? You're on page... 90, 99. Oh, you are on Yep, top of 99. Okay, so yep. So did I miss something last from? Oh, I don't know. I think I we covered everything. I think so. If you have a question, though, I can cover a question. But otherwise, I think, yeah. Otherwise, I think we're good to go. So one of the things we notice here. So on, what, remember these days of the week. That's what we call days of the week. They would have had different names for them. But on the first day of the week, uh, what we would call a Sunday was his. Uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he acted out a parable from Zechariah chapter 9. The day before, we know from the other Gospels, he'd actually been at the home of Mary and Martha. And while he was reclining at the table, Martha anointed his head with oil. We're going to see that in Matthew's story, he actually tells it out of chronological order. And we're going we're to try to answer the question why he does that. So he takes the anointing that happened on Saturday and he tells it to us mixed in with the events of Wednesday and Thursday. But he has a, a deliberate reason for doing that. So on Tuesday, Jesus has just finished up the sermon. He tells his disciples that it's two days until the Passover. So by the way, we keep time on Thursday evening when the sun went down. A new day would have started by the way they count time. And Jesus is going to eat this Passover meal with his disciples. We'll come back to this slide again when we get closer to the, the account of the Last Supper. But it just helps us to think that, remember, their days start at sundown. So on what we call Thursday, that would have been the 14th. But as soon as the sun went down, that was the 15th of the month, All right, when we would still consider it the 14th. So it's on that evening of the 15th, on that Thursday night, that he eats the Passover meal with his disciples. 
Um, John has a couple other references there in blue that we'll talk about, but it's on Friday the 15th during this first full day of the Passover festival that Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice for us, his people. And we'll talk about that as we go a little bit further. So that kind of summarizes the first paragraph. And now we'll just start working our way through some of the things that actually happen in this chapter. It's actually, these last couple chapters are kind of long, so we'll just see how far we get. And if you have questions, you can feel free to, to raise your hand and ask. All right, so in the first little paragraph there, verses 3 through 5, we find out that there's a plot going on to secretly arrest Jesus during the feast. So remember, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are packed into the city. Uh, because of that, the Roman governor comes from his capital at Caesarea, and he sets up shop there in the city temporarily just to make sure that peace is kept, and he would have had soldiers with him. Uh, the Passover, you remember, celebrates their exodus from Egypt. So for them, that's like their July 4th. It's their Independence Day. So the festival would have had a very patriotic fervor to it, and so there was always the potential of just the slightest little spark igniting a riot. And Jesus has had lots of Galilean pilgrims who came with him, who welcomed him, accepted him, followed him, liked him. And so the chief priests are looking for a way to secretly arrest him without causing an issue. And it's all led here by Caiaphas, who's the high priest. There's a little bit of confusion because if you're familiar from Luke's gospel, he refers to Caiaphas' father-in-law as being the high priest. And it almost appears as if there's two men that are high priests at the same time. The issue was, and this is probably uh, it's an illustration of the sin of the country, because their high priesthood had just become a political appointee. So it was no longer a, a succession from Levi or from Aaron specifically, but it was just a political football that could, at some points in the intertestamental period, could be bought uh, for the highest bid. Or during the Roman times, it was basically just given out as a favor. And so you had two men in a row, a father-in-law and then his son-in-law, who had both been high priests, but the father-in-law is still living. And so that's why Luke refers to both of them. These men here, these evil men, it says in verse 3, they've assembled together. Verse 4 says they're scheming. And both of those verbs there, both of those words, are used in Psalm 31.13, which is a, a psalm that Jesus will later quote from the cross. So even from this little paragraph, we're probably supposed to start thinking about David's words in his psalm that Jesus picked up and used appropriately during his crucifixion. So then the next thing that happens is this anointing. So it says there in verse 6 that Jesus was in the house in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper. We don't know anything else about Simon. I mean, you could kind of speculate that he might have been someone that Jesus healed because he must no longer be a leper or he wouldn't be having a, a feast in his home. And this woman comes in and she opens up an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, and she pours it on his head. So in a few moments, we'll look at a picture of how they reclined and ate at these meals, but they're pretty much laying down, resting on their left arm so that their right arm is free to eat. So it would have been very easy for her standing up to come to break open this jar 
pour expensive oil. His disciples, notice it's not just Judas in Matthew's gospel, it's really all of them. They're all kind of upset about this because it's a great waste. This perfume, they say, was uh, very expensive uh, from Mark and John's account. We find out that it's actually worth 300 denarii. So we've seen denarii over and over again. Remember, it's the coin that a common laborer would get for a day's work. So this is 300 days of work, or it's, it's a year's wages. So we can understand their surprise, right? If you just saw someone take a year's wages and pour over someone's head, even if it's an act of worship, I think there's something inside of us that thinks, huh, I wonder if there would have been a better use of that money. But Jesus actually um, blesses her, right? He says what she's done is a beautiful thing, uh, that wherever the gospel is preached, it says there in verse 13, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, if we compare the other gospel accounts, the one in Mark and the one in John, we realize that this is Mary. This is Lazarus' sister. A short time before this, he's raised her brother from the dead. She's been his follower. I think she genuinely loves him. So this is a genuine act of devotion, and she must truly believe that he is going to die and be buried, as he's been predicting. And this is her way, as Jesus says, of preparing her from burial. But it is interesting, isn't it, that Matthew doesn't name her. Matthew seems to just want to use her as an example of all of Jesus' followers, right? So he doesn't even name her, doesn't single her out, even though it seems like everybody in the early church would have known this story, because Jesus says it's supposed to be told, and Mary and Martha would have been very well known. So even though Matthew knows who it was, Matthew was there, he chooses not to, um, to name her. But we still have to answer the question, why did Matthew move the story? If it actually happened earlier in the week, why has he put it at this point? So going back one slide, just to remind ourselves that it happened on Saturday. Well, I think the very next little paragraph, verses 14 through 16, explain this for us. So I think here we have the story of, of, uh, of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. And I say there in point two that Judas, I think, is a foil in the story to the unnamed woman who loves Christ in the preceding paragraph, all right? So let's put these two accounts side by side and think about it. So you have the unnamed woman, who I think is just supposed to represent all of us who truly love Jesus and are followers of him. She takes very expensive perfume, which we find out from Mark and John, cost a year's wages, and she's willing to pour that out over Jesus' head. On the other side, you have Judas. He goes and he receives 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's not real clear, as I say at the top of page 101, um, how much this is worth. I think roughly 120 denarii. The issue is we don't know what kind of silver coins these are. So at most, at most, he's willing to sell out Jesus for four months' wages. At least, it could be as little as just one month. I mean, these actually could be denarii again, so it could be 30 denarii. So it's actually a tenth of what Mary just poured over his head, or at most, it's still a significant fraction. A couple of places, though, probably from the Old Testament that we're probably supposed to think of. One of them is the price of a slave. In Exodus 21, if you had a slave who was accidentally killed by someone else's animal, the person who owned the animal was supposed to pay restitution, 
and the price was 30 shekels or 30 pieces of silver. So as one writer puts it, Judas was willing to sell out his master for the price of a dead slave. I think that's one way to look at it. Another place, and we're probably supposed to think of both of these, is Zechariah chapter 11, because there it's the wage that a shepherd gets. So we'll talk about this next week, because in chapter 27, when Judas goes and he returns the money, Matthew is going to make a statement that this fulfills a prophecy. So we'll have to think about that. But at the minimum, at this point, just remember that in Zechariah, the prophet is asked to do one of these acted-out parables that I've talked about before. And in the parable, he gets dressed up like a shepherd, and he acts like a shepherd, and then he gets a shepherd's wage, and it's 30 pieces of silver. So just notice the contrast, right? And it's not just financial. Just comparing the financial side of it doesn't do the full picture, because you actually also have to think about the motives behind it. She's willing to pour out that much money over Jesus' head, but if you'd asked her, she would have readily admitted he's worth much more than that, right? She's not actually putting a price on Jesus. He's worth far more than that. I think for Mary, for this unknown, unnamed woman, she sees Jesus like the man who found the treasure in the field or the man who collects pearls and found the one of greatest price. You see how she illustrates Matthew 13? But for Judas, he literally is putting a price on his head. That is all that Jesus is now worth to him. Even though earlier, for some reason, he was willing to follow Jesus, he was willing to preach and perform miracles with the rest of the twelve, he's now had a change of heart. He's like those, those soils that just looked like they were going to have fruit for a short time, but then they faded away. For some reason, and we're not told why, he decides that he's willing to sell out his master for the price of a dead slave. So I think those two stories are deliberately put side by side, but they can only be side by side like that in the story if Matthew changes the chronological order. And he's not being deceptive because we've known all along that he's arranging things topically. This is just be like a flashback in a movie. You know, when you're watching a movie and they want to tie some together so you get a flashback, it's the same type of thing in Matthew's writing. All right? So now let's talk a little bit again about the Passover. So I say there, point D, we're looking at verses 17 through 30, and we're talking about number one there, that the Passover began at sunset on the 14th of Nisan. So when the 14th was becoming the 15th. We know that the, the first full day is going to be a Friday. Okay, It's going to be the day of preparation for the Sabbath. So there's only two years that it could have fallen in, you know, because the Passover is kind of a moving holiday, just like our Easter is a moving holiday because of the same reason. So to find a Friday within the Passover, uh, you would either have to have a crucifixion in the year 30 or the year 33. So those are the two options. I, I think 33 is probably the best option, but it doesn't significantly change things either way. Now, one of the things that happens, though, is that all four of the gospel writers, they give us all kinds of details about what happens during Jesus' final week. If you've ever looked at the size of Jesus' final week compared to the rest of the gospel stories, it's very significant, especially in, in John's gospel. But because of that, because they're all telling details from different perspectives, critics will often point to them and say they contradict that they contradict, they say things that are against each other. 
But there's no good reason for that. If you come to the scriptures with that type of attitude, you can always see contradictions if you want to see them. But I think if you come with a, a willingness to accept its message, that they have very reasonable and logical ways of putting them together. So one of the issues is that in John's Gospel, he talks about a day of preparation for the Sabbath, and he talks about this meal, this Haggagah, because remember when the, the chief priests are taking Jesus to Pilate, these hypocritical men, even though they're plotting to kill a man who they know is completely innocent, remember they don't want to go into Pilate's home where he's staying because it'll defile them and they won't be able to eat the Passover meal. And some people have pointed, well, that's a, that's a mistake, right? Because the Passover would have been eaten the, day, the night before. But we actually know that they had a, a meal that they would have eaten that afternoon. It was just an additional meal that also would have been considered part of the Passover festival. So remember, the Passover went for eight days. It was a long feast. The whole thing was referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So just real quick, I'll go through those bullet points, A, B, and C. So the disciples, they prepared the Passover meal on Thursday afternoon, you know, using our days of the week. And this would have included taking a lamb to be sacrificed at the temple. After sunset that evening, they ate the Last Supper, which was the Passover meal. So it's the traditional Passover meal with all of its usual elements. And Jesus is able to use those <clears throat> to represent his body and his blood and to teach his disciples about this supper that they're supposed to celebrate on an ongoing basis in order to remember him and what he's done for him. So then that night, he's arrested following the Passover meal after they've sung the traditional psalms. So they, it talks about them singing hymns. That was a usual part of the evening. There was specific psalms that they would have sung. And then um, the next day, uh, he's crucified on, on Friday, which would have been the first full day of the feast. All right? At the very bottom of that page, though, verses 20 through 25, we have Jesus predicting Judas's betrayal. So just to get us thinking a little bit about what this might have looked like, they weren't sitting at a long rectangular table like da Vinci's famous painting. As far as we can tell, they used these little couches, probably a couch that normally would have had three guys on a couch, but maybe they crowded a little extra in that night, but probably in some kind of U-shaped pattern. So they normally would have sat in a U-shaped pattern so that there would have been one opened in where someone could have been coming back and forth bringing food to them, okay? Because if you're completely in a circle, nobody can get at the table. This also allows them to, to talk to each other, to see each other, I think what's significant for the story, though, is that they, they recline. So there would have been like a really low table or even maybe a mat in the middle. They're all laying, leaning on their elbow with their legs stretched out behind them. That's how they would have eaten with one free hand. So the man to your side, if he's laying here, he can actually lean back into your chest to talk to you. And we know that that's the position that John has. Remember from the other gospel accounts that he leans up against Jesus' bosom or his chest during the meal. He's probably one of the youngest of the disciples, possibly maybe Jesus' first cousin, but he has a close relationship and he has this position. But actually the, the position of honor, so Jesus would have been the, the head of the table, he would have sat in the, 
the, where the U's connect there at the top of the picture in the middle, he wouldn't have had a halo over his head, right? But this is just an old picture, <laughs> right? But actually, next to, the, next to the head, it would have been this left-hand position. We might think it's the right-hand position was the place of honor, but it was actually the person on the left, because the person on the left, he had the privilege of having whoever was in charge being able to lean up against him and whisper to him and hand him food. And that seems to actually be where Judas was. The, all the way to the end, our master was treating him as a friend. He was showing kindness to him, even though he knew exactly what's going to happen. That's why I think that Jesus is able to whisper things back and forth with Judas, because they're literally leaning up against each other without the rest of the table knowing exactly what they're saying. And that's why when Jesus takes food, Judas would have been the first person that he would have handed it to. So I think it's during this meal that Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal using some words that are probably meant to echo Psalm 41.9. So let me just read some of verse, verses 20 through 25. So it says, When evening came, starting in verse 20, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad. And they began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And just stop there for a second. Realize they don't know it's Judas. They think it's just as likely to be them as it is Judas. I mean, we would have thought that as soon as Jesus says, Hey, one of you is going to betray, that everyone would have looked at Judas, right? It's, it's got to be him. He's been acting shady. But no, he has everyone completely fooled. No one thinks it's Judas. They're all actually asking, is it me? Am I going to be the one that betrays you? Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. And see, I think they could have very quietly whispered that back and forth between the two of them. Remember in John's gospel, then Jesus also tells him to, what he's going to do, do quickly, and he gets up and leaves, and the other disciples aren't exactly sure why he has left. All right? So then we have... Um, see anything else I want to talk about? Then we have this institution of the Lord's Supper. So picking up in point four at the top of page 102... We know we're very familiar with this passage because we read it often when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But Jesus picks up bread and he picks up wine. The bread is going to represent his body. His, the wine is going to represent his blood. He says he wants them to keep celebrating this together until he comes in the kingdom. So I think this is one of several statements in Matthew's gospel that all refer to the same event with this until language. So this is the return of the king. So one way you could think of us that you and I, we live in the until age. <laughs> We're living in that in-between. And you just notice some of the ones that we've already seen in this class. And the Sermon on the Mount, he said, until heaven and earth disappear, until everything is accomplished. And then chapter 10, until the Son of Man comes, quoting from Psalm 110, until I put your enemies under your feet. Chapter 23, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
until all these things have happened, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, until, this is how the book will end, until the very end of the age. If you think about those, those are all parallel statements. They're all in different ways talking about the same thing, the end of the age where Jesus returns and he makes things right. And until that happens, we're supposed to keep remembering him. And one of the ways we regularly remember him as a church is that we celebrate this, this supper together. Okay, And I think it maybe becomes more significant if we think about some of the specific things that he said. So one of the things he does is when he's holding up the wine and they're getting ready to drink that, he reminds them that this is the blood of the covenant. So in verse 28, he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on. Oh, I got to go back one verse. 28 is this, my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So it's that key phrase there, my blood of the covenant. I think everyone agrees that it should be, it's a reference to the new covenant. The other gospels make that very clear. The prophet Jeremiah especially he said that because the people of Israel had broken the Mosaic Covenant, it was like they had broken a marriage vow, right? Hosea actually illustrated that with his own acted-out parable with his wife. They were now like a man and a woman who was estranged and no longer had a covenant relationship. But God wasn't going to leave them that way. That God was actually going to make the move to go back and rescue them and bring them back, and they would recommit themselves into a new covenant so that at the return of Jesus... He will enter into a new covenant with the people of Israel. And that new covenant will have a blood sacrifice. But that blood sacrifice will not only cover the sins of those believing Israelites, but it will cover the sins of, it says here, many, many people. So I think there's at least three Old Testament passages that we're supposed to think of when we hear that little word. So the first one is from Exodus chapter 24. This is when the first covenant was made. So Moses had been up on the Mount Sinai. He'd come down with the law. He'd read the law to the people. The people said, yes, we agree to that. That is the kind of covenant that we want to enter into. We want God to be our God and we'll obey his law. And the whole thing was ratified, not only with their oath, but it also was sanctified or they were set apart by the sprinkling of blood. So an actual animal sacrifice was given, and Moses sprinkled some of the blood out there on the people. So the people, you see in the middle of that passage, they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. They probably spoke a little too quickly, didn't they? And then Moses took the blood, he sprinkled it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the idea is that the blood sets them apart and makes them God's people, his special nation. But then in one of the other passages that we've already seen in Matthew's story, remember this is the, this is the passage that Jesus acted out at the triumphal entry. Knowing that someday he'll return as a conquering king at a time of peace into Jerusalem, he acted it out with the, with the donkey and its mother when he went in on that Sunday before Passover. That's the beginning of the, the passage, right? But picking up in the middle, the, the prophecy continues. It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. 
So basically, they won't need military anymore because he'll protect them. Their enemies will be defeated, so they won't need weapons anymore. He says, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's not just a Jewish king. He's all of our kings, right? He's going to rule over the whole world with all kinds of different people. But then he returns, specifically referring to the Jewish people. He says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. That's probably a little echo of the Joseph story, right? Joseph went to Egypt after being in a waterless pit, so it's probably a metaphor for their exile. So they're going to be rescued from exile, brought back to the promised land, have a good king ruling over them who will protect them. They'll no longer have a military. They'll enter into a new covenant relationship with God as their, as their spouse, so to speak. And this will be ratified with the blood of this other covenant. Right? So I think that's one passage we're supposed to think of, those two together. But then this is another one. This was one that maybe we've thought of over this last weekend as we've thought about Jesus' crucifixion and the Passover. But this is from Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, going to verse 12 of the next chapter. It's all one long poem about the suffering servant. This person, who we find out is going to be Jesus, the Son of God, the prophecy says in verse 15, So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. So the, the prophecy starts out very cryptically, that there's going to be many nations who are sprinkled. It reminds us of Exodus 24, but we're not told, well, what are they sprinkled with? We assume it's blood, but it's whose blood, right? But then as the prophecy continues into Isaiah 53, the passage about all we like sheep have gone astray, it's a very familiar passage, we realize this isn't the blood of animals, but it's the servant himself. He's going to offer himself. And the key word that keeps getting repeated is many, many. So it's many at the beginning, and then it's many, many times towards the end. So he says, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. That's actually the word many again. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So I think sometimes the New Testament writers are very demanding of us. They, they expect us to know our Old Testament very, very well because they knew it very well. And they expect us not just to think of one passage, but a whole string of passages. So 1,400 years before Matthew wrote, Exodus was written. And about the 700-year mark, Isaiah was written. About the 400-year mark, Zach Zechariah gave his prophecy. And all of those prophets are leading up to Jesus when that night he says, now that sacrifice, that blood that you've heard about for these thousands of years, I'm actually going to do this tomorrow. That's essentially what he's saying when he takes that cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. There's our key word again, for the forgiveness of sins. All right, that's, that's essentially point five and six on page, page 102. I'll stop there for a second, see if we have any, any questions. All of a sudden got warm in here, didn't it? We're all sleepy. 
Anybody want to get coffee real quick? No. Okay. Yeah. The, the, you know, the commands here and, and, and uh, this stuff and the promises, you know, like Matthew 28, I'll be with you until the end of the age. He, he spoke that, assuming that the church age starts on the day of Pentecost, he spoke that at, at, in, in the Old Testament Mosaic law age. Mm -hmm. the, the thing is, just a question, do the prayers use that? Predators, yeah. Proof of, the, of their position. Point. Yeah, so the question is there's people that, are, that it, we sometimes call them preterist because they believe a lot of the prophecies Jesus gave have already come true, so they're past from our perspective. And do they use that, I'll be with you always until the end of the age? Yeah. I've never heard them use that. Okay, um, I just want, yeah, there's, there's two kind of two camps there. There's, there's a evangelical Christians who still believe that most of Jesus' prophecies are already passed, but they still believe that Jesus is going to return. So if you deny that Jesus is going to return, you're not really a Christian. So they would still say, yes, there's going to be a second coming of Jesus, and sometimes Jesus talked about that. Now there's a non-evangelical camp that also calls themselves preterists that just believe it's, it's done. I mean, Jesus is just done. He He's accomplished everything he's going to do. There is no return. Um, so, but either side, I've never heard them actually point to that particular verse. Yeah. Usually the whole debate rages over um, in the Olivet Discourse is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That's usually the hotbed. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. If it's that expensive, why do they have it? Yeah, so the, the, I'm not exactly sure, but from people who have studied it more than I have, the answer you usually get is this probably would have been something that they would have saved in their family for when a loved one was buried. So you would have prepared a body for burial. You remember, you, you'd, we'll probably see a picture maybe in the next couple weeks, but these chambers would have had a ledge where the body would have laid for a while, and then eventually the body would have gone into a, like a little alcove. In the meantime, they would have done things to, to make the body smell better, for lack of a better term. So it could be that the perfume all along was intended for burial purposes, but, and she just decided ahead of time, because she believes Jesus that he's actually going to die, that she's going to pour it out on him. So she's... If that's true, then what she's essentially doing is treating him like family, and and precious family. Yep. Well, that's kind of interesting because then Lazarus died right before that. Mm -hmm. She could use that on him. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I kind of want. I mean. Maybe they didn't get that. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those questions that somebody could do a deep dive on. So if somebody wants to do a research project, but I almost wonder if it was meant to be poured out little by little. You know, each time a family member died, I don't think it was just meant to be dumped out the way she does, but I think she did that as a lavish demonstration of worship that she truly does love, love the Lord. Yeah, any other questions there? Yes. Yep. The Abrahamic covenant 
so yeah. that's still a promise to Israel. And that's mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, many, many times in the Old Testament when God is speaking to the people of Israel about how they've violated the Mosaic Covenant and how you know, He's going to give them the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, He still points back to the promise to Abraham. It kind of superseded everything. It was unconditional and it was lasting forever. And because He had made that promise to Abraham, He keeps saying to the children of Israel, that means I will, I will fulfill these promises for you. Now, the, the trick there is, though, he doesn't fulfill that promise to each and every Israelite. Because remember, he speaks to them as like a, a group, a, corp, a corporate There's group. Promises to Israel as a nation. Exactly. But it, the promise was never, you know, Paul makes this really clear in the book of Romans. God never promised he'd save every Israelite. You know, that explains the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Why aren't they saved? Well, because they're, they failed to repent. So the promise was never, I would save every Israelite. It's just that he promised that in the end, after they go through a time of purging, that there would be this large nation, a significant number of them, who would be saved. Uh, Zechariah's prophecy says they'll see the returning Lord and they'll mourn for him, the one that they pierced, and because they'll have a change of heart. And then Hosea and his prophecy specifically talks about them like renewing their marriage vows, going back into a covenant. Jeremiah calls it a new covenant. Um, so I think all of these prophets in their own way are referring to the return of Jesus. And this will all be made possible because of Jesus' blood. That's the only way He can save them, but it's also the only way He can save us. And when you think about it, it's the only way He could have saved people in the Old Testament too. So men like Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Hannah, all of these saints in the Old Testament period, they're also saved by the blood of the New Covenant because that's the only thing that's ever been able to save people. Um, so that's why I think Jesus specifically alludes to several of these prophecies uh, on the night of his, um, his betrayal. When they talk about wine, is that the same type of wine that we think of today? Yeah, that's a tough question. I think we're, we're out of time now. No. <laughs> so... Yeah, so we know that their water at that time was, was poor. So they're, they're, it seemed their preferred beverage when they had meal times together was to take water and mix it with wine. So um, it wasn't until, I think, early Middle Ages that we figured out how to distill liquor, right? So in their time, it's usually just either grain that's fermented, what we call beer, or it's wine, it's fruit that's been fermented. So they can't make things as alcoholic as we can today because they don't have the distilling process. And we do think they watered it down so they didn't drink it as strong as we would. But having said all that, you remember at, at, in John's Gospel, when Jesus turns water into wine, remember the man says, hey, this is good wine, and normally we, see, we serve the good wine first. And so that kind of implies that maybe you weren't getting drunk on it, but you at least were having some effects of alcohol, right? So... That's my complicated way of saying, yes, they were drinking alcoholic beverages, but they drank them in moderation, and uh, what the Bible actually condemns is, is drunkenness. But then that raises another question, then, should we drink wine? Because Jesus, sometimes I get this argument, Jesus drank wine, so that means we should drink wine. But my response has always been to that, I'm not sure that Jesus would drink wine today. Just because Jesus drank it then doesn't mean he would drink it now. There's all kinds of different factors that would play into that. Uh, what other options do we have to drink today? 
Do we really need to drink it? What, what does that say to fellow members in our church who have issues with alcohol? So like my church, I don't know about your church, I don't need to know, but at my church we made a commitment together that we're not going to drink alcohol. And someone might say, well, that's strange. You're saying you'll do something that Jesus did. And again, my answer is like, I'm not sure that he would have done it today. Um, so that's my stab at it. Any follow-up? Until he drinks new, yeah. yeah. There you go. We've got, we've got the chapter and verse on it. Yeah. Yeah, but the the issue in the Old Testament, especially, is is drunkenness, right? Yeah. We're supposed to avoid drunkenness, being controlled by wine, and one of the easiest ways to do that, in my mind, is just to avoid it altogether. Um, we have lots of other things that are yummy to drink and even fun to drink, and we don't, and we have clean water, so it's not the same issue for us. All right, so then let's uh, let's go to the top of page one hundred and three. Just to kind of remind ourselves, another picture of Jerusalem. So the, the walls there that are in yellow, that's what it would have looked like uh, in Jesus' day. Those outer walls were added later. That red is showing the possible route of the triumphal entry. But I just wanted to remind you of the fact that they go and spend the night after that Passover meal up on the Mount of Olives again. They're outside the city, but they're facing the city. So it looks like they believed by tradition that they should all try to be in the city for Passover, right? And they would at least try to eat the meal within the city walls, but they couldn't all find places to sleep. It's just too many people. Uh, Josephus says there's a million people. He's probably, being ex- he's probably exaggerating the number. But you know, on the high side, there might have been 300,000 people packed into a very, very small walled city. So what pilgrims would usually do is they would go out and try to find some place where they could camp but still see the city. So that was their way of doing it. If we can still see the city, then we're keeping the tradition. So that probably explains why Jesus and his disciples decide to go camp on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, I'm going to skip over that next point because we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to the next chapter. And I want to go to page 104 here. So it's, it's during his time in Gethsemane where Jesus asks his disciples to, to wait and pray. So the first time uh, this takes place, um, he says in verse 38, then he says to Peter, James, and John, that's the three you know that he's taken with him, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So that kind of becomes the key word. And remember, so there's three times Jesus will go and he'll pray and he'll come back and he'll find them sleeping. Okay, he wakes them up. He scolds them. Look what he says in verse 41. Well, I'll back up to verse 40. He comes back. He finds them sleeping. He says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus is making a connection between things are dangerous. You're going to face a temptation to do something that's wrong. And the way to combat that is through 
watching and praying. So watching and praying get put parallel, all right? And then finally, he comes back the last time, and uh, he wakes them up in verse 45, but by then it's, it's too late, right? His betrayer has actually come. I think this is a significant account in the Gospels. It might be easy for us to think, you know, what does this have to do with us? We're never going to be in a garden at night with Jesus off praying, and we're supposed to be keeping watch for him. But if we remember, keeping watch was the key word that kept getting repeated just in the last chapter. Remember last week, all of those parables about how we don't know when the Lord is going to return, so we need to stay awake and keep watch. Just like a person who would wait for a thief, because the thief never tells you ahead of time what time he's going to be there. So if you're going to catch a thief, you've got to stay up all night and watch for him. So Jesus has just, on the Mount of Olives, told his disciples, you need to be the kind of people who are alert. You need to keep watch. You need to stay awake. Then he gives them a test. He gives three of them a test. All they have to do is stay awake for one hour, literally. And they're supposed to pray. And I think that's significant because I think prayer then is one of the ways, maybe the chief way we could say, that you and I keep watch. Our natural tendency, maybe just speaking for myself, but I suspect I'm not unique, is we can just kind of start coasting through life. If I could use the metaphor, we could, we could sleepwalk through life. We could just kind of go with the flow and not realize how dangerous the world is around us. And we could forget that we actually daily should be praying, as Jesus taught us, you know, deliver us from evil, lead us not into temptation. Because, as Jesus just told his disciples, our flesh is weak, right? Our spirit can be willing to do things, but our flesh is weak. So when we see that about ourselves, what do we do about it? Well, we, we pray. That's, that's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. He knows he's going to go away, and they're going to face a test. And Peter is going to face the biggest test in just a few hours, right? And the only way they can pass those tests is not through their own power, but through the power that they derive from their God and that they receive in prayer. All right, And I think this connection is legitimate because I think other writers pick up on this. So these are some other keep watch passages in the New Testament where it's connected with prayer. All right, So Matthew 24 and 25, that's from the, the Olivet Discourse. But then we have Paul in, in Colossians 4.2. He says, devote yourself to prayer, be, being watchful and thankful. That's the same verb there, is keep watch. So he's tying prayer and keeping watch together. In 1 Peter 5.8, he says, be alert. That's the same word again. So you could have translated that, be watching. Be alert and of sober mind. Does anybody remember how the sentence ends? Why are we supposed to do it? Because... Yeah, he's, he's looking for you like a roaring lion. That, that's that's Ryan Meyer paraphrase, right? But he's seeking people to devour, right? So wasn't the, the, the Satan, wasn't the deceiver seeking to devour Peter that night? Isn't Peter going into a horrible temptation, right, in just a couple hours? One that he was warned ahead of time that was coming, but instead of praying that he would be delivered from it, he goes to sleep. And it would be easy for us to say, yeah, they just had a big meal it's the middle of the night and they're up on a garden. We'd go to sleep too. But Jesus lots of times modeled during his life that he would stay awake all night in prayer, right? He realized that prayer was a necessity if he was going to resist the temptations and the pressures of this world. 
So Jesus himself, twice in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, verses 2-3, he tells the church to wake up. That's the same word again. So keep watch, be alert, wake up. It's the same verb. And then he says, blessed is the one who stays awake. We actually have a couple early Christians who also made this connection. I think this is interesting because, uh, you know, these are not inspired men. These are not apostles. They could get things wrong. But it's interesting to me that very early they know about Jesus' words and they're putting these things together. So the first one is a man named Ignatius. He wrote this letter to a man named Polycarp. He did it about the year 110. So his life and ministry would have overlapped with the Apostle Paul. So it's, it's relatively close. And he says to his friend Polycarp, as he goes to his martyrdom, he says, devote yourself to unceasing prayers. Ask for greater understanding than you have. Keep on the alert with an unresting spirit. So see, there's the connection. You need to be praying, Polycarp, and you also need to be keeping watch. How would you keep watch? You would do it by prayer. And then Polycarp, about the same time, he writes a letter to the church in Philippi. So about 50 years after Paul writes his letter to the Philippians, this other Christian leader writes another letter. It's not scripture, again, but it has wisdom to it. He says, Therefore, let us leave behind the worthless speculation of the crowd and their false teaching, and let us return to the word delivered to us from the beginning. So evidently, the Philippians were starting to drift off and listening to false teaching. He says, Let us be self-controlled with respect to prayer and persevere in fasting, earnestly asking the all-seeing God to lead us not into temptation. Where did he get that from? He got that from Jesus, right? I don't know if he's seen. He could have seen Matthew's gospel by this point. I mean, it's been almost 50, 60 years. So he's either seen Matthew's gospel or he has memorized Jesus' words, either way. But he connects two passages. He says, earnestly asking the all-seeing God to lead us not into temptation, because as the Lord said, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. All right. So that's just a great challenge for us all, that this little passage that it might be easy for us just to gloss over the story because it just seems like you know we'll never be in that kind of situation but the point is we're really in that situation all the time we're always facing temptations we always live in a dangerous world our spirit is willing because we've been born again but we aren't yet what we will be we still have a flesh we still have a sin nature and so we have to keep praying deliver us from evil Rescue us from the roaring lion. Lead us not into temptation. All right? So it's at that point, after Jesus has just scolded Peter, and remember, Peter often represents all of us, that Judas shows up with his little entourage. Uh, these are probably the, uh, basically the police force for the temple. Probably not Roman uh, soldiers. There's probably not very many Roman soldiers, as in like people from Italy, that are in this area. They would have been stationed other places. So most of the time, it would have been auxiliary troops that Jesus would have encountered. And probably here, it's the actual police guard of the temple that the chief priests used to come and arrest him. Of course, they're only doing this because Jesus is willing, right? He says, I could have called for 12 legions of angels. So roughly 6,000 men in a legion. I don't know, 12, maybe one for each one of them, right? So one legion for himself and 11 for the other 11 disciples. 
But either way, he says he's going to go willingly because the writings of the prophets have to be fulfilled. He doesn't specifically name one prophet, but there's been all kinds of connections to Zechariah's prophecy. And he just, a few lines before in Matthew's story, I think referenced Isaiah 52 and 53, about how the suffering servant was going to die not for his own sins, but for the sins of the many. And the only way he can do that is if he allows these men to take him and take him to the cross. All right, so flipping the page then to page 105. So at the beginning of our lesson tonight, I mentioned that sometimes critics, because there's so many details from four different perspectives, they like to point out what they consider to be contradictions or inconsistencies. But again, Christians for thousands of years now have been showing that these all can be very logically, without being forced, put into a harmonization, ways that they actually make sense. So one of the issues that gets kicked around is all of the different trials that Jesus goes to. Uh, the difficulty for us, if you want to call it a difficulty, is that no one gospel writer talks about all of them. You know, in our mind, we would like it to be like a court reporter, just blow by blow, tell us exactly what happened minute by minute. But we've already realized in the gospel stories, that's not how they like to tell stories, all right? They like to arrange things topically, and they're always selective. John said if he told everything about Jesus, the books wouldn't be able to contain it, right? And that even includes what happened to him on his final night. So this is kind of small, I know, over on the left, but I just wanted to show you one chart. So they have their supper on Thursday. They have the prayer in the garden where he's arrested. Uh, he actually goes first to a hearing before Annas, who's the former high priest. That's probably just kind of an informal thing because he's the father-in-law. He still has sway. But it's only John that tells us about that. In, in Matthew's gospel, he, he's already in front of Caiaphas. So he goes to the son-in-law, who's actually the high priest. The son-in-law starts interrogating him. And at some point, the rest of the Sanhedrin probably gathers that's probably why it's going in stages, right? Because this is the middle of the night. <laughs> they just found out that Judas is willing to do this for him. And so they're quickly trying to get the rest of the men gathered together so that they could put on this late night mock trial. And remember, there's nothing genuine about this trial. They've already decided they want to kill him. We've been hearing that for many chapters in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew also tells us that he eventually, when we come back next week, we'll talk about this. He's going to go to Pilate. Luke is the only one that tells us that in the middle of talking to Pilate, Pilate finds out he's from Galilee, and he decides, oh, I can get rid of him that way, because you know Galilee is technically under Herod's jurisdiction, so I'll send him to Herod. Herod's interested in him. Remember, this is the same Herod that executed John. He probably wants to see Jesus perform a miracle or do something cool for him, but he doesn't believe in him. And so he sends him back to Pilate. And then it's finally Pilate who condemns him and sends him to his crucifixion. So again, none of the gospel writers of the four tell us all of the details that happened that night and the next day, but there's no contradictions. If you approach the gospels with uh, an ear to hear and a willingness to accept what they say, then these all can be very easily harmonized together. All right? But it's, we'll just tackle that... Uh, that first one that Matthew talks about here in verses 57 through 68. So he starts out there in front of the high priest Caiaphas with the rest of the Sanhedrin gathering. They bring some false witnesses, point two. 
One of the false witnesses against Jesus claimed that he had promised to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And this accusation apparently distorts Jesus' saying that we know about from John 2. One of the cool things about the gospel accounts is that they interlock with each other, especially John. Remember, John writes about 30 years at least after the other gospels have already been written. So he probably does know what they look like. And I think he's motivated by the fact that there's, there's some things I should fill in. There's other details that I could tell that would make this a little bit fuller account. And so he'll often insert interlocking details that kind of fill in the gaps. And he's the one that told us in John chapter 2 that Jesus said something about the temple, but he actually wasn't talking about the literal building. He was talking about his body. But you could see how someone listening to that with an unbelieving heart could twist it. And the accusation is that this humble man from Galilee, right, who's standing there in front of Caiaphas, is actually somehow going to destroy this giant building that's a national treasure to them. All right? So he finally gets on the, on the spot. And in verse 63, Caiaphas says to him, Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And in Matthew's account there, the way we've got it translated here in verse 64, he says, you have said so. To us, that might sound like he's being kind of vague. I think that's how it's often understood. But I think he is being direct. There may be a hint of it. I am, but I'm not the kind of Messiah that you think I am. I think he's trying to distance himself from the fact that he's any kind of immediate threat to the, both the Roman authorities and to the temple, all right? He someday will be a threat to both of them, right? He someday will destroy all of the nations of this world. He someday will come back as a conquering king, right? But he's not that yet. As he stands there before Caiaphas, just like when we see next week when he's standing in front of Pilate, he is no immediate threat to them, okay? But he does clearly affirm that he's the Messiah. If it not, and you have said so, look what he says next. He says, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So there he's now alluded to two Old Testament prophecies. So Psalm 110 talks about someone sitting at the right hand of God. Daniel chapter 7 says that someday there will be one like the Son of Man who will come from heaven and he'll supplant all the kingdoms of this earth. And Jesus, if I can paraphrase him, is basically saying, someday in the future, you all will see me do this. So this is a very clear affirmation that, yes, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, and that's how they understand them, right? Because then they, they tear their garments, they accuse him of blasphemy, they say that he's worthy of death, and they spit on him, and they drag him off to be crucified. So you have Jesus put there on the spot, you know, Again, sometimes to capture the force of these gospel accounts, we have to remember that he is, he is human. He is a man, right? So he's susceptible to all of the same pressures that you and I are as people. He's there in the middle of the night, away from his friends, in front of this group of people who he knows wants to kill him. He's being put on the spot to answer a question, and if he knows, he answers it in a way that they don't want to hear, that they're going to try to kill him. And he just boldly says, yes, I am exactly who you think that I am. 
Meanwhile, and this is, I think, the point in the story, at this exact same time, what's Peter doing? Peter is outside of the courtroom, being warned ahead of time that this is going to happen to him, facing a much smaller crowd with a lot less of pressure, and he caves, right? He gives in. There's a, a big contrast between Peter and John. And I don't think that's a stretch to say that that's what the gospel writers want us to see, because notice back what John does. So notice in John's account of Jesus being before the high priest, the account goes from 12 to 14, and then there's a break, and then it picks up in 19 through 23. Does anybody want to guess what's in the middle, in, in the middle of the story? It's Peter outside denying Jesus. So John does it almost like a movie would do it. We're seeing one scene, and then we get to see the other scene, and then we go back and see this scene. He goes back and forth in his story so that the two men can be contrasted. Jesus is the faithful servant of God. He has a mission that God has given him to do, and he is carrying it out. Peter, in all of his victories and his defeats, he represents us, right? He's well-intentioned, he wants to follow, but his flesh is weak. He's, he's not Jesus, right? There's a, there's a large difference between the two men. Peter should have listened to Jesus' warning that night and prayed that he wouldn't fall into temptation. All right, so it's at that point we'll stop and we'll, we'll pick it up next week. And uh, Lord willing, I'll see you then. Okay, a question about sure. Flesh, as I understand, basically, 